Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and I'm really excited about speaking with our guest today. Our guest, in my opinion, is a lifer. Uh, she's 30 years in the trenches, and I'd like to go a little bit over her background just to kind of give you a little bit of uh, humility, as I did reading her uh, her her wonderful life thus far. And so with the COVID pandemic and the long-term pain of racial injustice recently boiling to a head, educator and creative activist Lori Marshall shares practical ways that parents can flood their families and communities with kindness. She'll discuss creating a family story that captures your family values. In addition, she shall share small daily practices, fun family projects, ways of turning daily chores into games that help your children and you be kinder and ideas for being in service to your community and kindness. She is a project-based learning and arts integration specialist who has worked with underserved youth for over 30 years. Her partners include FEMA and Project Drawdown, the world's largest leading resource for climate solutions. She's trained over 6,000 students in project-based learning and facilitated 125 nature-based murals with over 25,000 people in schools, nonprofits, and government agencies. If that isn't humbling, I don't know what is. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Lori Marshall to the podcast. Thanks to Hamza. I am very happy to be here. Absolutely, yes. Um, over the years, just talking to many people, there are no accidents, and there's always a beginning, and I'm sure we're going to find out your beginning, but I do right off the gate have to give you a hats off. Um, you're not one of the – I just came along during the Internet, and I'm, <laughs> I'm a social justice warrior by changing my background and my social media profile, and that's it. You've kind of rolled up your sleeve as a lifelong – of devotion. So, you know, I, I just want to give you your flowers for all the work you've done this far. Thank you so much. And it is a very humbling process. I am continually learning and getting feedback back on when my uh, actions are not in alignment with my words and my words aren't in alignment with my values, that it's a never-ending process. It's not like I get it together and it's done. Like. I'm always learning. You know what? I, I want to. We're going to talk about the well-being of children in, in your book, The Flood of Kindness, and just every, touch a little bit on everything that you've talked about. I mean, that you've done thus far. But what you just mentioned is not living or resting on your your laurels. And it sounds like for 2020, this feels like a global reset. And so, since this has kind of come out of the blue for what we know thus far, a lot of us can't rest on our laurels of what worked yesterday because that doesn't apply in today's world. Right, right. And the beauty of being close to children is that they change every day. And Mm -hmm. what worked yesterday does not work today. And (laughs) we have to completely keep thinking, what does my child's soul need today? And what does my child's body need today as they outgrow clothes and shoes? And and so the process of being close to children is a process of completely, is a very humbling process because you keep having to grow and learn. And it's also I, a joyous process because they're I, such great teachers. Oh, my God. Yeah, I have to wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I've had my toe in, in both waters, if you will. I, I did teach early childhood. Uh, I taught second grade, uh-huh. and okay. I've been in the corporate world. So from a sales standpoint, you know, I would, I'd get evaluations twice a year or sometimes quarterly. But with children, you know what works immediately and <laughs> you know yes. what doesn't. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you also – Try things that might work and nobody knows it at the time. Mm. There might be a de-escalation that you've just done that allows your child to uh, 
uh, have space or you might give your child some words for what they're feeling that they don't have to and maybe a year later they'll use those words. And so another humbling and important thing about being with children is that even though you can tell when something isn't working, it's hard to tell when something is working and you have to be have faith that your love and care that makes you keep trying and keep experimenting and keep learning that that's the most important lesson that they're getting that you love and care for them even if you mess up in the moment sure so i want want to ask you when we're talking with children and a popular phrase that children hear is use your words and one thing i did know and mind you I, i only did a year in the school system and um, this was actually my 10-year anniversary my with the Big Brother Big Sister program. And Beautiful. My, yeah, my little just graduated, and so he's in his first year of college. And it's amazing how, how, far, how fast time flies. But when I, when I talk about words versus actions, I've always learned, even with my little or in the classroom, I may say something or I may be teaching a curriculum, and it, it, what you just said about what might work and, and you don't know it at the time, uh, it, it's so interesting that you may say something and they're not listening, but they are watching you like every moment, every movement uh-huh. that you make. And that speaks yes. to me more volumes than the words. So where, where is the good, I guess, the, the sweet spot of your words and words versus your actions? Well, in terms of being an adult, we are the leaders in terms of modeling the behavior we want. And if we tell our kids there's no violence in this house and then we hit them, that's really confusing to the child. So the, our, our important thing is, is to be impeccable with our word and we're all going to fail. Um, and also to help them with words, because when we tell them to use their words, they don't have words. They don't know how to say, I'm really triggered right now, or I feel put down and that feels bad, or um, I'm, I'm so upset that I want to hurt something. They don't know how to say that. And, and we have to model, we have to first model it when we get upset. And to say, whoa, I'm really upset. I'm going to take three deep breaths and go for a walk. I'll be right back. But I know if I say anything right now, it's not going to come out good. So we have to constantly model self-reflection. And Maria Montessori said that self-reflection is one of the greatest skills that humans can have. And the head of um, the... Hurricane Katrina cleanup, Admiral Thad Allen uh, said that the greatest skill that we all are going to need in the 21st century is emotional intelligence. And again, it's hard when we feel attacked. We have like 0.04 seconds to interrupt attacking back or doing freeze. Um, And I'm still working on this. I'm 70 years old and I'm still working on this and I work hard at it and I'm not where I want to be. So in terms of um, the words versus action, uh, it is so important to model making, owning when we make mistakes, to model um, keeping on learning, to model kindness, to model having, uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to our child um, and also to stay calm and to um, de-escalate when there is, when the child's acting out and uh, being really upset instead of telling them uh, you shouldn't act that way, you can say, I'm here with you. It's a very different message. And that, um, and then you can also say it, that's not okay. 
And here's a way for you to express what you want to express without hurting anything, without hurting pets, people, or objects. <laughs> um, so it is a, it's a holy work. Uh, somebody said that a marriage and a family is like a dojo, and a dojo definition is the place of growing awareness. And we cut our teeth for all our lives on our intimate relationships and especially with our, our children. And nobody's ever raised... Oh, go ahead. I have a two-part question to that because when we're talking about giving children the benefit of the doubt and we're talking about, as adults, modeling behavior, it made me think of bullies. And then, you know, when you have bullies and you're like, oh, this big bad bully, but and you find out that he's modeling the behavior that he sees at home is the first yeah. part of the question. And then the second part of the question is um, if we're talking of modeling behavior, now that was for early, you know, younger children. Now this part is for teenagers so much. So when, when we talk about modeling behavior and the parents could be, you know, model citizens in the community, go to church and what have you, but then their child will have this, you know, the violence that we've seen in the news at the schools where they're taking lives. So how do you, how do you balance giving that child the benefit of the doubt versus modeling the behavior? The children, I'll start with your second question. The children who take lives are, are children who have, are extremely isolated, mm. every one of them. They're not being connected with by their parents. Their parents are not saying to them, I'm with you. They have gone into a world of often a virtual world that feeds their violence, and they're searching for purpose, and they're hurting, and everybody, part of, we are such a sensitive animal. We make each other feel the way we feel. Um, we have an electromagnetic field around our heart that's 10 feet. Everybody's heart is an electromagnetic field, and this is the scientific measured by an organization called Heart Math, which I highly recommend investigating. Um, so everybody's heart electromagnetic field is affecting everybody else's. If you've ever taught, or even in business, we all get triggered by the most um, disturbed person in the room. Mm -hmm. They affect our hearts. And the uh, people that do sh mass shootings want other people to feel as much pain as they're feeling. So those are not people that are being uh, joyously loved and cared for and paid attention to. And paying attention to means that you call kids on behavior that doesn't work. Not that they're bad, but that it's not working. You know, it doesn't work to murder a bunch of people in order to get your needs met. That's a huge not working. Um, and um, so it's very, very important to listen to what is the inner experience is of the child and to have a way for the child to express their inner experience. And it may not be through words. It could be through art. It could be through music. Um, it could be through sports. Um, Rudolf Steiner, the founder of the Waldorf uh, curriculum, said that uh, the reason he thought World War I happened was because people couldn't express their souls. And um, children need to express their souls, and they need to have stories that inspire them to be their best selves. And we give children many stories in our culture where might makes right and force wins. And the good guys use the most force so they win. Even Wonder Woman, which was supposed to be about love, she, 
she did it for love, but it was she used force as the way to achieve the goal. And mm. it's so as a culture, we need to have inspiring stories of uh, people treating each other with respect and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. I, I just heard a, an amazing story about Nelson Mandela who was in a restaurant when he was had become president and he saw somebody sitting alone and he invited them to join his table and the man was very nervous and they everyone at the table was kind to him and shared food with him and the man could barely look anybody in the eye and he ate quickly and said thank you and left and one of Mandala's uh, colleagues said why did you invite him to eat with us he seemed so uncomfortable and he said that man was one of my prison guards and he beat me he urinated on me he cursed me and I wanted him to see that retaliation is not the only choice we don't have a lot of stories like that Mm-mm. wow and, yeah I I highly recommend, if you have teenagers, um, two sets of, uh, two authors. One is Paul Chappelle, who Mm -hmm. is an Army captain. He was in the Army for seven years and served in Iraq. Um, He describes himself as somebody who could have very easily been a mass shooter. His father had PTSD so badly from serving in the military that he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. And he was a beloved father one minute and then screaming and beating Paul the next. And Paul became very isolated. He's part white, part black, and part Korean. He didn't know if he had any black blood in him until he was 10. And he didn't tell anybody until he was 22. And now it's the first thing he tells people. And he talks about how if racism can change in him, he knows it can change in other people. His father passed for white and said that the military was the only place that a black person could be treated fairly in our country. And he used to fantasize in high school about killing the people in his class. And he played video games and, you know, single shooter video games. And he had a teacher who recognized his need to express himself and gave him the gift of writing. And he's written five or six books. They're called The End of War, Will War Ever End, Waging Peace, The Peace, uh, the Peaceful Soldier, The Cosmic Ocean. And he's applied everything that he's learned in the military to waging peace and to creating a culture where people stay calm and give others the benefit of the doubt, which is what they teach you to do in the army. He's Mm -hmm. working now with uh, virtual reality to make uh, games that help people understand that aggression is a form of distress and how, how to transform and de-escalate. As you know, we have so many policemen who are not able to de-escalate, and it is a very important skill. And um, Paul said that uh, a thousand years ago, we used to think that we needed to sacrifice somebody in order for the crops to grow, and nobody thought about reading. Now, we know that we don't have to sacrifice anybody for the crops to grow. And we assume that everyone needs to learn how to read. And the next essential uh, skill set we need for the 21st century is uh, peace literacy, is emotional intelligence, or we're not going to make it. And the kids that are coming in now have, if they are supported and nurtured, they have enormous emotional intelligence, I'm observing. Enormous compassion and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So that just affirms the importance of 
having people be able, children be able to express themselves creatively. And you can do that in your family, as I mentioned, of having a family story which you make up around what your family stands for. And to say our family is a stand for kindness. And when we're mean to each other, we figure out how to make it right. And um, the other author I want to recommend is Rivera Sun, who has written a series of three books called the R.E.R.A. series, which are about an 11-year-old orphan who lives in a warring community, two communities that are warring against each other. And she learns uh, a skill set of nonviolence. And they are as incredible as Harry Potter in terms of action and characters. And the magic in the Ari Ara series is nonviolence. She, uh, Rivera, has created a culture where people seek to do no harm and seek to figure out how everyone's needs can be met respectfully. Again, we have very few stories like this in our culture. Mm -hmm. And... Nonviolence in this world is a highly physical, skilled practice, just like Tai Chi. And it's, they're wonderful page turners, and you can't wait to see what happens next. And they're very courageous books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I, I was unaware of both authors, um, so glad you highlighted them. I'll put those yeah. in the show notes as well. And I wanted to ask about uh, when, when you, we're talking about if there's a, a random act of or what seems as a random act of violence, and you, you said that children whose lives are extremely isolated are like that. So as an educator, how were you able to identify or are you able to identify signs that are early signs of if they keep going in this direction, this will be the undesired result? Sure. Um, I have taught kids uh, who were very scary um, and who ended up doing harm to other kids and who were being abused. And um, if a child is uh, paid attention to and looked at and listened to and thought about, they don't end up hurting other people. But if a child is hurt, they end up hurting other people. And um, I, you, you tell by whether or not they're able to make any attachments. And children who are not nourished have attachment disorders. And you can see them because they're not able to make friends. They're not able to make eye contact. They're not able to have normal conversations. And they make the people around them comfortable, the other kids uncomfortable. And um, I, after the Parkland shooting, a year after that happened, I went to um, West Glades Middle School, which was the feeder school of Parkland, and made a collaborative mural that uh, help the kids process the first year anniversary of that. And the shooter had gone to um, that middle school and the teachers had been worried about him and they had mm-hmm. spoken their concern and he fell through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And we need to have small clusters of 230 kids that go to go through K through 12 together and that have consistent adults. These high schools with 2,000 kids moving around so much, not having uh, neighbors that know you, that's all very foreign to how humans have lived for most all of time until the last 150 years of, of the Industrial Revolution. And so we need that. You know, we need that 
kind of holding of our students in small groups. In the Waldorf um, school, the teacher stays with the students from K through eight. And that doesn't always work out, but it's just I want people to know that there are other models besides 30 kids in a classroom and getting and changing every year. And we need to treat all students like graduate students. We need to always be listening for what deeply interests them and feeding that with the best materials and with experts and sticking them on real problems that they can help with. Because for most all of time, kids were part of what was useful. They knew that if they didn't carry the water, they wouldn't have water. Or if they didn't plant the food, they wouldn't have food. And there was a direct connection between what they could contribute. That was abused, of course, with child labor. Um, But there was a time when they were fully integrated into the real work of the world. And we need them now more than ever because the real work of our world is to uh, live in such a way that doesn't destroy the gorgeous, unique planet that supports us. And the elders can't do it by themselves because we don't have a big enough box. (laughs) And the young kids, people think outside the box. And... Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to constantly be exposing uh, children to great stories and great science and um, great history. Art history is so wonderful to learn about the, this impulse to create symbols and tell stories and share meaning that's always been in people. And um, so exposing them is, is great and listening to what they come in with to what brings them joy, to what makes them feel useful, and harnessing children to do those real, be real colleagues in solving our problems. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back a second to the Nelson Mandela story. And mm-hmm. when I was, before graduating undergrad, I had an offer to go to Ghana with the Peace Corps. And mm-hmm. part of the culture in our, not indoctrination, but just to prepare us to go over there was the thought that you could never, you will never be alone. Like it's culturally Im- uh, embedded in the culture over there that, you know, a person is not supposed to be alone. Even if you want to be alone, you can, a person, another person from their culture will sit in the room on the other side of the room and not say anything so you can Uh be alone with your thoughts but that you're physically not isolated. And as I talk about 2020 being a a year of a reset, we see that the the global community, there is more of a community-based as they respond to uh, what's happening globally with the pandemic. And we're seeing here in the States that that's not happening. In fact, I've been asking podcast guests, you know, that live in different parts of a country, what's it like? Because every, every state's response is different. And mm-hmm. so from a U.S. standpoint, how can we learn from those outside of our bubble of the states to have more of, of a community feel? I say that a week, a week before an election. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm so glad you had that experience of the village. And um, we have to be creative. Creativity is the thing that's going to help cope with the isolation that's happened with COVID. And um, uh, I I have attended uh, several um, marches to honor Black lives and Everybody is socially distanced and have masks on, and and yet we are here together to say that Black Lives Matter, and um, we have to check in on each other, and uh, we can still bring each other food, and um, 
I have a friend who's helping her friend uh, in the hospice process. And I, I think one of the things is Americans' individuality. Um, we have so many stories of the lone wolf who solves all the problems. And um, uh, we need different stories. We need different images. And that's one of the reasons that I do collaborative art that is based on trees because all the leaves of a tree work for the whole tree and all the leaves in the forest work for the whole, all the trees in the forest work for the whole forest. And when one part of the forest doesn't have enough nutrients, the whole forest sends nutrients to that part. And I just learned yesterday that the ocean is dependent on the leaves for iron, that all the leaves and all the forests, they take iron from the earth and put them in their leaf and the leaves fall back to the earth and they decompose and the rains come and the rains take that iron to the streams and the rivers and to the oceans and that iron is essential for the bacteria that make the plankton that the whales eat and the fires in California this fall are going to affect the whale migration in the spring because there's not going to be enough iron in the ocean. And nature is interdependent. It is, it is, life is exceedingly cooperative. And the competition that happens is never out of balance enough so that life dies. Only now our planet is in danger of many ecosystems dying because the human dominance the human competitive spirit <clears throat> of Western civilization and the idea that we're separate from the earth and that we can extract from the earth and it doesn't have any consequences is killing our beloved planet. And ah, it's, it's terrifying. And we need the youth um, to work with us to nurture this beautiful planet we've been blessed with. <clears throat> and, yeah. Well, it's I want I mean, you said a mouthful, and, and I know that you, you have many years with Project Drawdown. And so I do want to ask you, it, it was brought to my attention, I, I want to believe the end of March or sometime in April, where there were a lot of videos and photos uh, going circulating around the Internet of wildlife in the middle of cities since the humans weren't yeah. there in lockdown yeah. and, we're, and places like India where there's tons of, of pollution and the sky was clear as day. Yeah. And when you were talking about how uh, nature is interdependent and humans feel separate from that, I want to get your take of no matter what we do, if we're here or not, <laughs> the earth seems like it's going to get along just fine without us. Yes, it, it will take some time, um, but the earth doesn't need us, and we need the earth. And I mm -hmm. understand that only 4% of the animals on our planet now are wild, that mm -hmm. the 96% of them are domesticated. <clears throat> and one thing we can do is to eat less meat. That's one of Project Drawdown's, um, to have a plant-rich diet will help our planet um, mm. and to, to decrease food waste will help our planet enormously. So those are two things that everyone has the power to do. And now, to plant gardens. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I want to stay there for a second because it's, and I hate, I hate that every subject matter now it feels it's a political hot potato, right? But in the previous administration, there was a whole push for plant-based foods, a plant-rich diet, what have you. And then in the yeah. current administration, it was like, no, kids want pizza. And mm -hmm. we, I saw just corporations kind of doing the same thing. I'll use the Golden Arches, where their menu maybe 10 years ago had like 40 things on it. You can get apples with a sandwich, what have you. And then they were like, we're not making enough money if we have to do all of that. So 
on the surface, it's again words versus actions. The words, yes, plant rich diet, uh, you know, not eating as much animals or what have you. But if it's affecting the bottom line, it seems that that supersedes everything else. Again, it's a matter of story. We have a short term story of the bottom line. We have a longer term story of um, the ecosystem surviving and the many ecosystems together surviving. And again, we're seeing collapse and we're seeing uh, weather systems that are devastating. And we, we need a longer term story. And it's uh, related also to uh, fossil fuels and fracking. And mm-hmm. fracking has uh, given the United States some energy independence because of its gas all the natural gas, the process is very, uh, contributes to the parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, which we need 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide to, for human life to flourish, and it's now at 419. And uh, short term, we may have um, energy independence, but if we don't transition as fast as possible to innovative green solutions like getting energy the way um, plants get energy from photosynthesis. There are people that are working on uh, designs that would do that, that would be very cheap and very efficient because they mimic nature. Um, If we don't make that transition, if the temperature rises five degrees, there can be a tipping point where we can't go back. And so we have to have this long-term story. We have to have the story of the next seven generations of children, as many Native American people understand that those are who we have to think about when we make our decisions. So our short bottom line thinking is um, killing us. And there's new business models like the SB3 corporations, SB corporation social benefit that mm-hmm. have to uh, assess their people, their profit, their planet, the triple bottom line. Um, and that's growing. And I just hope it can grow fast enough. And there are ways of growing food using uh, nature's recycling processes uh, because in in nature all waste is food, and mm-hmm. in our in human culture that we have now we make toxic waste, and that doesn't mm-hmm. happen in nature. <laughs> so we need mm-hmm. to understand how nature does it. I love the Biomimicry Institute, which is based in Missoula, Montana, that has produced 230 different products that are uh, very closely aligned to how nature does things, like uh, cement that is based on how coral takes CO2 from the atmosphere and combines it with salt water and makes this incredible cement. And um, they have people that are working on making, uh, capturing energy through the photosynthesis process. Um, and there are several bit companies that are uh, embedding in glass these uh, dye-sensitive cells. And we can do this. We absolutely can do this, and we can do it with the kids who are dying to do something purposeful, who want to have purpose and mastery and autonomy and connection, and we need them. And um, I I did want to share about the book, The Flood of Kindness, which which isn't my book. It's actually written by Deontay Webster when he was eight years old in a – a historical fiction assignment in his third grade class. And he, his mother had gone to school in uh, Louisiana at Gremlin University. And uh, he was very taken by the experience of the Hurricane Katrina. So he wrote this story called The Flood of Kindness. Uh, and he put himself in the shoes of a child in Hurricane Katrina and thought of what would be one of the worst things that could happen and he said he thought to himself it would be to lose his best friend and so that's what he wrote about and in his story he uh, the 
main character, his name is Jaden, cries with the grief of losing Jessica Park, his dearest friend, and his tears turn into a magic rose. Mm. And the magic rose is the container of kindness in New Orleans, but it disappears and turns gray because there's no kindness because of all the fear and the hatred and the anger that has been caused um, by how the grown-ups handled it. Um, He didn't say that. Um, And what Deontay has done in this book has shown that community is the antidote to all these disasters. And uh, I had the honor of helping him bring it to form as a book and to do the illustrations. And um, this eight-year-old understood the tragedy of the hurricane and the heartbreak of people losing their loved ones and experiencing anger and chaos. And then the brightness of when the community all came together and flooded um, each other with kindness. And that's the model. And he made it, you know. <laughs> and, it, you know, ideas are in the air. And, again, we need to listen to the children. Mm-hmm. That, that's a wonderful story. And uh, I wanted to, you, were, you had mentioned earlier about short-sightedness versus looking at the big picture. And here in the news cycle, if it's not shocking, right, it's not getting the ratings so people turn off, and Katrina, and for all uh, intents and purposes, wasn't that long ago, uh, but it seems right. like ancient history. And when you talk about the children and writing about grief of losing a friend, you know, hopefully we, we won't have the, the large numbers, but with the, the children going back to school, uh, and they're around friends that may not be there the whole year due yeah. to what's happening. So. Um, outside of the community, or how could you, if everyone's on lockdown or a version of lockdown, so that they're keeping social distancing, but there is a lot of isolation, how do you get the community to come together, especially in a time like this? Two creative projects is one way. Mm-hmm. You know, there. I don't know if you've seen any of these choirs where the people are singing incredibly together. Um, uh, you know, they're in, in Atlanta. Um, I, I have an incredible colleague who I taught when she was uh, in sixth grade in rural Virginia, and she's now an entrepreneur and educator in Atlanta named Doretha White. And um, her son of school all made a song together. And there was a, a director who did that, right? And I'm making collaborative murals now with people uh, over Zoom. And we're sharing ideas and, uh, and painting them and then adding, sending each other images to add. And um, we need to play. So, again, one of the healthy things about being with kids is that they know how to play. And that's how they learn. And if it's repeating it over and doing the same thing over and over, it's not play. It's boring. Mm -hmm. So if we take the model of children, we can play with each other via Zoom. Um, We can play with each other at a distance. We can go for walks. We can ride bicycles. We cannot let COVID uh, stop us, but help it be a, a limitation to inform our imagination. Because all humans are mortal and limited, and we have to be creative within limitations. And that's when you make a painting, you have a limited space. When you make a song, you have limited time. That's what we humans do. And we have the limitation of COVID, and we have the limitation of time on our temperature planet rising. And we're going to be more creative than we have ever been and can ever imagine to be. That's our job now, every one of us. Mm-hmm. I, I really I like that. Yeah, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said that a child shall lead them. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Children it, play. It, they love. They experiment. 
they, they accept people and they tell you what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In real time. <laughs> real time. You might, they might not know to say how what does work, but they'll scream and holler. Sure, sure. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about the kids that are here. Uh, they, there, is, there are some early studies that are saying that because of uh, this global ex- experience that we're having, that the baby bust, we're in the middle of a baby bust where children or parents are deciding not to have children because of what's currently happening. Uh, do you foresee that being uh, long-term where there will be a huge gap um, with the population? Or do you think, because we're about to get into cold weather. So it's just really interesting that COVID happened in the winter and, you know, but now we're about to go through the second wave. So I was just wondering about keeping the, the human race going. Well, that's a really great question. Um, my I have two sons who are 37 and 34, and my 37-year-old son just had a baby a month ago. And mm-hmm. many, I know so many people that just had a baby. It just, it's mm-hmm. really interesting. And the question of whether or not to bring children into a world that is, there's no question it's going to be tough. There's no question that there's going to be heating up because if we stopped what we're doing right now, the temperature, the trajectory of all the CO2 that we put in the atmosphere is still going to raise the temperature at least a degree. And there's going to be parts of the world that are not habitable and there are going to be people who are, will have to migrate. And unless the human race comes together and says, we Nothing is more important than our children. That means that we have to work together to bring down CO2 emissions and to stop poisoning the water and the soil and work together. It's hard to bring a child into a world when the human race has not made that decision. And I just I have to honor that. You know, on the other hand, I made a singing tree mural, which is a, this collaborative mural project that I've been doing the last 20 years based on trees where every mural envisions solutions and success to community challenges. A seven-year-old girl named Paige um, Prince in Virginia made a lead one that was called the blood dragon singing tree to prevent extinction. And what's breaking her heart is the extinction of animals. And we made this mural, um, and the kids started, we, everybody was adding an animal that they didn't want to go extinct. And the kids started making baby animals. So they would make the mommy or daddy animal and then the baby animal, because they understood that if you want to prevent extinction, you've got to have babies. <laughs> <laughs> and none of the adults like like you know put that together um and i just pray for everyone who is raising children now and for everyone who's bringing who may be bringing children into the world um that uh they understand what sacred holy work it is that they get support for it that our country gives uh uh, parental leave for a year like they do in Scandinavia mm-hmm. that we make pregnant women's experience as least stressful as possible that we support the first five years that we don't just think about giving benefits to daycare but we also think about giving benefits to people who are staying home with their children that we be a child friendly society we could do that you know, we could give enough money so that kids can return back to school and have 15 kids in a in a room and uh, and pay teachers as good as we pay doctors. And, you know, we, we, we can change. That's what they do in Japan because they value their children. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm seeing and working for and have been uh, all my life. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, I do want to ask you, um, with that, uh, you were talking about the – my biggest takeaways were the, the interconnectedness of a human, um, the human race with nature and the heart math. So just learning that there is an electromagnetic yeah. field around you, I think that's huge to to highlight that because there yeah. there does seem a, like a lot of isolation. The only connection to the outer world is through electronics, and so that that's a slippery slope. And the other takeaway that I wanted to ask you was: Do you, uh, sometimes if there's nothing new under the sun, we go through cycles, and if there was a, a way of life that was preferred once upon a time that doesn't exist, that do you think we may go back to that? Because right now there, there are conversations of because of the fear of sending your kids to school or daycare, mothers are deciding to stay home. Now, if they stay home, then that child is getting that attention that they were missing when both parents were working. Do you think that that is part of the reset of going back to uh, traditional values that once thrived in the community? My hope is that uh, – it's a great question. My hope is that raising children is valued like never before. And I don't want to go back to um, where women didn't have any choice and men didn't have any choice. And that uh, all the <clears throat> unpaid work of women to care for the children, to care for the sick, and to care for the elderly um, was not noticed or acknowledged or honored. I love Andrew Yang's idea of uh, giving people social benefit credits, mm-hmm. that we really as a society understand how Important the work of being of raising children is, and that it is acknowledged in a way that decreases stress. It, um, you know, to be a, a single mom raising kids or a single dad raising kids is very, very hard, and people need more support. And uh, you know, I I want to go back to the village and the village the way. Indigenous people had the village, which is the aunties and the uncles helped to raise the children. And the everybody sang together and danced together and ate food together and told the stories and cared for the children and cared for the elders. And the elders helped with the children. And, um, uh, and there was democracy. <clears throat> you know, I, and we and they and their village was rooted in knowing the land. And I personally am heartbroken because I don't belong to the land um, the way I want to. Um, Sherry Mitchell, who is a lawyer and a from the Penobscot tribe in. Maine, her people have been on an island for 13,000 years, and their village is, the, the, the word for land means um, my body, mm. and I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I lived for 30 years in rural Virginia. I felt like I belonged to that land. I went back to Pittsburgh to care for my father for the last four years of his life. Then I came to California, which has been an incredible training ground for me, Um, but I don't feel like I belong to the land. And now both of my sons are in Texas, and my Mm. grandchildren are in Texas. And we have all this freedom in our culture to travel, but I'm having a lot of heartbreak about not belonging to the land and not having that village, but I do have another experience that everyone that I've taught and everyone that I've, uh, has helped me on my path is part of my forest and that we nurture each other. And now I'm getting to be one of the mother trees, the old, oldest trees, um, and um, that we all stay connected. Even if I am, and that's what COVID has taught too, that even if I am 
a thousand miles away from my grandchild and 3,000 miles away from many of the students I taught in Pittsburgh and Virginia. We are still connected. And I'm seeing their children and they send me pictures and I send them pictures. Um, and one of the students right after COVID hit, uh, a fifth grader, made a drawing of the world. And you know how there's this drawing of the world with everybody holding hands around it? Right. Well, he, he made a drawing with COVID holding hands around it. There's all these little COVID viruses around it. So <laughs> we, have, we have this uh, connection to everything that's alive and everything that's here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm seeing it as, as my forest. Now, w- with the connection, you're part of a, a singing tree project as well? Yes. So I'm, uh, I founded that project in 1999 when an eight-year-old girl asked, what if the whole world made a painting together? Mm-hmm. And uh, that resonated so deeply with my longing for all humans to work together. And I didn't know how to do that. And I, uh, somebody handed me the book, The Singing Tree by Kate Sarity, which is a story of World War I when her father was escaping the enemy, crawling on his belly all night in the mud and feeling terrified. And everything had been destroyed by war. And when the dawn came, one tree survived. And that tree had birds that aren't normally together singing a song that had never been heard before. And I look at the earth as the singing tree of our galaxy. And I've used the structure of a tree on the earth and space to um, facilitate and help others facilitate about 88 murals, um, each one on a subject that's breaking the heart of the community. And, um, you can see them at the singingtreeproject.org. And every one of them is unique and beautiful, and it's a, a synergy that happens when people work together and we come up with innovative solutions to the problem. That's, mm-hmm. that's the job of the mural. And I think over 30 years, you found a lot of solutions. And as you mentioned, uh, another big takeaway is what you think might not work you don't know it at the time like in its iteration it'll change to ultimately work for the the ultimate good for society and you you also mentioned the collaborative art that you're doing over zoom there's a lot going on of uh, what you focus on expand and if you're focused on the well-being of children and collaboration it sounds like you're definitely a resource that many people want to be a part of uh, so they don't feel isolated in a time like this. So I'd like for you one more time to tell them how they can get in touch with you with uh, the Singing Tree Project, uh, your website, uh, in addition to the Flood of Kindness. Thank you so much. Um, you can reach me at singingtreeproject.org and singingtreeproject at gmail.com. And I have a, another website, which is uh, laurie-marshall.com. And my nonprofit is called unitythroughcreativity.org. So those are all ways that you can reach me. And we, we're entering a new world. And Valerie Carr, the incredible author of uh, no, no One a Stranger, um, the Revolutionary Love Project. She says that the human race is in uh, transition now, giving birth, and this is the darkness of the womb, not the darkness of the tomb. And it's very painful. But for the first time, we are envisioning all over the world a regenerative economy and a democracy that includes everyone, that respects everyone. And what a world we would live in if all the gifts of everyone who's, who comes here can be used as opposed to living in this world with a story that only a few people are privileged to have their gifts be used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and and fulfilling that vision and, and getting more people and that message out there, I think that's the way that it comes to fruition. And you are definitely a beacon or a resource to lead people in the right direct direction to attain that. And with Thank that, you. absolutely. Uh, with that, you've just included another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Lori Marshall. It was a pleasure. Let's definitely stay in touch. Yes, and thank you for bringing positive stories to the world. They're so needed and so powerful. Absolutely. Thank you, Hamza. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.